Once again, a warm welcome to Art Fictions with Stories of Art and the Art of Stories. I'm Gillian Knight, and today's guest is the very talented Tom Wilmot. Tom's practice doesn't follow the regular path of an artist, so I thought he'd make an interesting guess to find out why that is. He's dedicated to remaining true to his deeply felt ideas out of need as much as want, so he takes us through how he is developing not only his own work, but also his online initiatives which reach out to other artists. I find in Tom's minimalist paintings an elegant portrayal of light, of colour and of shadow. His paler works are delicately quiet and they seem to drift in and out of view. Then he has brightly coloured pieces which are like contained bursts of electric energy. To my surprise, I discovered that their aesthetic properties don't particularly drive his intention. In fact, Tom's approach to painting is much more to do with maintaining his mental health. And throughout our conversation, he describes how each aspect of his artistic life is shaped to keep his personal demons at bay. And along those lines, he's chosen a novel which is much more in sympathy with his whole practice than it is with his actual paintings. It's The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. Published in 1971, the novel picked up on a bizarre and unreliable reporting of the exorcism of Roland Doe in the late 1940s. Before he'd even finished writing the first draft, the author was offered a film script which led to the book being churned out for quick publication, followed by the 1973 supernatural blockbuster starring the head-turning, green-goo-spewing Linda Blair. She plays the young Reagan, whose behaviour changes dramatically and disturbingly. Meanwhile, her desperate mother appeals to a myriad of health professionals until, in utter desperation, she seeks a priest to perform an exorcism in order to cast out the devil which has supposedly invaded her helpless daughter. Welcome to Art Fiction's Tom Wilmot. Thank you. Happy to be here. Today we're discussing The Exorcist, which I have read and I've watched the film, and they're both quite a hideous experience. I can only apologise. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Don't! <laughs> Never apologise, unless you're a member of a political party. Well, yeah, in which case you never will. Um. <laughs> you will, but you'll never mean it. No, quite. Tell me why you chose the book. I chose the book because I read it as something of an allegory for depression. Um, now, my practice, as it stands now, is largely led by my pursuit of my own good mental health. I suffered a period of depression back in, well, it was a, a number of years, but culminating in a, a breakdown in 2016. And having read The Exorcist about a year ago for the second time, I saw in it a lot of sort of allegorical parallels with what I felt uh, the kind of the experience of depression to be. The main story of the book is that Reagan, a 12-year-old girl, is possessed by a demon and it takes over. So her character almost completely disappears. And so I read this change in personality and the kind of battle within her as, as I say, very reminiscent of my experiences. I also feel like the, the sort of internal struggles that she deals with 
they're making real many of the problems that some of the principal characters have. So, for example, Father Karras, who is a priest who's called in to help Reagan, he's kind of racked with guilt over his mother's death. Um, he has serious questions about his faith. Carl, who is the uh, housekeeper, he's hiding his daughter from her mother and is kind of racked with guilt and sadness over that. You've got uh, Reagan's mother, Chris McNeil, who feels guilty over uh, the breakdown of her marriage and what that has potentially done to her daughter. So that's why I chose it, was because it mirrored many of the things that I felt, not to suggest in any way that I thought I was possessed, the descriptions that Blatty makes of the possession kind of ran similar to my experience insofar as as this kind of creeping, growing, poisoning entity that changed the way I thought um, and changed my character to the point where now that I look back, I almost don't recognise that person that I became. But I feel like my job now is not to allow that part of me to assume control again. And I feel like my work and my practice over the last four years or so I look at it as sort of a behavioural mirror. Rather than work too hard on thinking up what it is I want to make, I approach it more like making what I feel I want to make and then reading it back after the fact, uh, sometimes years after the fact, to try and work out what it is I might have been thinking at that time. Just to stick with the book for a bit, as you say, with depression, you're full of something and everybody else is almost like a puppet to whatever you're going through. And I wondered if it was because the writer was a scriptwriter or whether it was intentional because the book made a really good film, obviously. I'm not sure it made a really good book. What the book did do was play out Regan, the child, seems to be the only one with any substance. And the substance she is filled with is evil. And everybody else felt like an empty vessel. It's the similar thing when you're very depressed, where everybody becomes a projection of what you feel. Mm. You know, nobody else has their own internal world. It's beyond you being able to recognise that. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really interesting. Yes, if we take the demon to be depression, then it becomes extremely introspective. And the idea of taking into account or appreciating the feelings of others, the thoughts of others, uh, it, it becomes borderline impossible because of the turmoil that's going on within your own head. So yes, I think your description there of, of those other characters becoming not quite one-dimensional, but certainly fairly surface compared to the kind of churning character of the demon and it's almost four or five characters in one and whereas everybody else is just about one. That was another aspect of Reagan I thought and going back to depression or mental health issues can incorporate all different aspects. But what What's the main priest's name again? Damien no, Karras. No, no. Is, no is not him, main. Marin. Mary. I just think of yeah. him as Max. But his character says at one point to Karis, you know, there aren't multiple devils or mm. uh, invaders or whatever. There's only one. There's only mm. ever one. And I thought that was quite interesting with, you know, the, the lens through which you see the book as a stand-in for depression. 
um, yes, I mean, in my experience, that is what I have kind of had to settle with myself is that it's all me, all of that stuff, you know, the good that I want to be and the bad that I have been and will always be there in some form or another. Aside from the presence of this evil spirit is also a story or a backstory, if you like, of transition. And I want to talk about your work in this context. So, for instance, the author, William Peter Blatty, great name, (laughs) Blatty. I was just thinking for a moment of saying that as an Australian, Blatty, it would (laughs) be. Yeah, that would be true, yeah. Aside from this evil character being the centre of the story, there's also a backstory of transition. And the transition for the author, William Peter Blatty, is that he's been a comedy writer and he's been very successful. And then that sort of goes out of fashion. And at one point he sees his movie agent in the unemployment line and he realises, oh dear, I am doomed. Now is the time to write that novel I was always going to write. So he embarks on this novel and as a result of its enormous immediate success, his comedy writing is cut dead. He can't get a comedy gig after that. Uh, So it really categorised him. There is also the story of Regan, who's age 12. So she is on the cusp of shifting into teenagehood. And I was interested in those sort of backstories of transition and you having shifted from very detailed works to the work that you're doing now, which I know that's been a process, you know, that's not been overnight, but you as well can't really go back to what you were doing before. Yeah. As you say, I used to make figurative work till 2011. Predominantly, I guess, would be characterised now as large-scale domestic interiors. And due to various life changes, moving house and having a small studio, my daughter was born early in 2012, and my work life at the time becoming increasingly more demanding. Opportunities to, to paint became fewer and fewer. And it it just dwindled to the point where I think over the course of 2012, I I basically just didn't make anything for a year. And it kind of got to the point where I realized this is not sustainable. If I want to make anything, if I want to kind of satisfy this urge to to paint, I'm going to have to start again, essentially. And so that's what I did. I need to assess what I've got here, what opportunity I have, and devise a set of rules which allow me to paint. Ultimately, I had to make work which was small, 20 by 25 centimetres, 30 by 40 at the maximum, quick to make because I really was snatching maybe an hour when my daughter was asleep. But most importantly, it had to be enjoyable. And in order to do that, I realised that it wasn't the content of the painting that was the problem. It was the act of doing it. It was the physical sensation of rubbing pigment on a support with a hairy stick. It really was that. And so I realised by making just monochromes, all of those needs were fulfilled. Another one that was important, in fact, to think about it, was that it couldn't be wrong. That's where the abstraction started, really, from kind of extreme necessity and bringing painting down to, I guess, the absolute basic of what it can be in terms of fine art. And then from there, I began to kind of build on it and introduce different elements, always trying to maintain those rules that I'd set out for myself. 
you said that part of the transition involved this devising of rules. Mm-hmm. But what I understand is before you even got to the point of devising rules was almost like a ground zero, a starting at, at nothing mm. and thinking about what can a painting be. I mean, yeah, what, I did have to think about what a painting can be. And as part of kind of considering what it is that the behaviour of painting had to do for me, it did occur to me that, you know, painting happens in other contexts other than making art. It's, you know, you can you paint your house, you paint a skirting board. And I do derive a degree of pleasure from purely functional painting. And that certainly did play a part. I think that was probably quite important in my decision to start with monochromes. That reminds me actually of being at art college and painting a large canvas. And one of the tutors saying to me, oh, you know, Julian, don't be so so rough with the paint. You're not painting a wall. And I thought, what's wrong with painting a wall? I love painting a wall. Why not? (laughs) No, absolutely. I mean, you know, a few steps into the kind of early abstract works, I, I realised that many paintings that I'd made, I liked a lot more when I just half primed the canvas. And I realised that that purely functional approach to laying down paint yields the freest, most expressive marks often, because you're not thinking about it kind of composing in the moment. So I tried to make a series of paintings like that. But of course, it becomes impossible, because once that's the idea, then you lose the the ability to dissociate that idea from the activity. So it's sort of self-destructive realisation. Once it's measured, it no longer exists. Some sort of quantum theory thing, I don't know. But the point is that the the concept failed by being conceptualised, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So coming back to the book again, Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting, the story of Pazuzu, who's the king of the demons of the wind, which is uh, from an Assyrian and Babylonian mythology. And very early on, when Reagan is in this transitional phase, she's strangely empowered by this demon because she warns off the doctor to not touch her inappropriately. You know, she's rude to this absent father. She's very suspicious of the psychic I think there is something of mental illness that is strangely empowering, not in the depths of it. Once she's fully possessed and the devil reveals itself that it's determined to kill her, you know, I mean, that's completely horrible. But there is that partial stage that she goes through where she was pointing the finger at adults in a way that you don't when you're a child. You're so submissive. Mm. And she was able to say, you know, don't touch me, don't mess with me, don't mess me around to her dad, etc. I mean, I think there's something there definitely. Um, In my experience, my behaviour became a bit more bolshy, certainly more erratic. Probably I did try to stick up for myself more than I would have done. And at times that felt good, but ultimately it needs to be curbed. And how did that affect your work at the time? That's hard to say. I don't remember a lot specifically of that time, but I did have an exhibition in uh, Shoreditch just before my breakdown. My wife is quite clear that when she went to see it, she saw a very schizophrenic group of works. 
I should add, my wife's also an artist. We met at Camberwell, so she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> she she tells me that she saw a very disjointed group of paintings, and she said it did reflect the way my character was and behaviour was lurching back and forth, and was unreliable and unpredictable. It, it was a it was a right jumble. In the book as well, they were grasping at all sorts of different explanations for Reagan's bizarre behaviour. They were talking about temporal lobe damage and schizophrenic psychosis, disassociative hysteria. There was another thing. Was it parapsychic phenomena that was the one where you think you're possessed? I I believe parapsychic phenomena, that that's moving stuff around with the power of your mind. Yeah, and then all those different specialists, hypnotists, neurologists, psychiatrists, and then throughout the book in general, there's references to atheism, Buddhism, chanting, transcendental meditation, psychic, levitation, yin-yang. Everything's kind of jumbled in there. And I was thinking about that in the context of what it's like to go through the process of becoming well again and then go through the process simultaneously of trying to find Mm. a new way to work and all the possibilities of how you might help yourself and all the possibilities of how helping yourself affects all the possibilities you look for for changing your work. So can you maybe describe a bit of that interwoven process? At this point... As I said before, I certainly look at my work as largely predominantly led by my need to stay well. It's functioned like that for some time, but it's only really now that that I feel like I'm getting a handle on it. I actually think it, it started before the breakdown, and I now look at much of the work that I made in the years leading up to it as a kind of preemptive strike at being well desperately trying to clutch at little moments of something for myself. After the breakdown, that was in the early summer of 2016, and I spent about three months in convalescence at my parents' house. And I remember the first day after a couple of months when I felt like painting again, I remember my dad being kind of overjoyed. I said, oh, have you got a bit of wood and a bit of paint? And he was, yes, yes, I absolutely have that. Uh, I, I remember it distinctly and it being a notable checkpoint. I was kind of like, okay, this is this is the right way to go. Since then, I've certainly actively pursued the painting as a way to feel good because it's a fundamental need for me. It's, I don't know, an urge. It's a bit like hunger. It's compulsive, obsessive, but it's also protective. It's a release of attention that builds up if I'm not doing it. The feeling, the urge to paint is, I used to describe it as sublingual, but then I realised it wasn't below language, it's actually above it. And so, yeah, my practice since then has been as and when I need it in order to to be a big part of staying well. That's a really interesting way to describe it, because if we come back to what I was talking about in the book in terms of particularly meditation, I remember when we met at After Nine Gallery when you curated a group exhibition Mm -hmm. and you were showing me how you physically moved when you painted your diagonal across Mm -hmm. the canvas. And I said, gosh, it's quite bodily. It looks almost like Tai Chi to me. Mm. So when you talk about that need, that release that it gives you, it does remind me of a mindset that is connected to something meditative or something quite spiritual. 
Yes. Not I that mean, I ever know what people mean when they say spiritual. I know exactly what you mean. It's a funny one because I think of it in different ways. It is meditative. I mean, when I'm engaged in the doing, it's kind of intrinsically calming. I just feel settled. But I don't, I don't know about spiritual per se, because what's very important to me about painting is the physical, the material, the kind of corporeal element, the, the reality of an object in the present moment. It's that sort of transcendent feeling that I get when I look at a really good painting. Using the word transcendent then kind of slips back into spirituality. But it's, <laughs> maybe it's a, a spirit in the matter. I don't know. I suppose I was meaning spiritual in the context of feeding your soul or something Mm. like that. Oh, I see. Um, So I have a similar thing with my yoga practice where if I don't do it, it's best not to be around me. Mm -hmm. Just to take a moment right now to describe your work. Well, I mean, to give a kind of a brief description, it's abstract work. It's formal. It's generally speaking, relatively minimal. It's certainly rooted in geometric form, but executed in a painterly manner in the different types of work that I make. I think the thing that is linking them together presently is finding a balance between an order that I've imposed by determining the composition, which for the last couple of years has been repeated parallel straight lines, which cover the picture plane edge to edge, moving in a kind of a shallow diagonal, be it horizontal or vertical. As I say, that geometric structure imposed by me, formed in paint, but allowing the paint to do what it will as a naturally kind of fugitive material. And is that how you get those uh, lines that are made of the sort of excess of the paint? That's it, the ridges. So in the the works that you're referring to, it's a a wooden board with a thick layer of oil paint, which is applied in bands with a palette knife, approximately an inch wide. And with a heavy deposit of paint, I run it in one stroke per line, left to right, across the board in such a way that the excess of paint pushes out top and bottom, occasionally runs over the blade of the knife and kind of is deposited in its wake, as it were. Working top to bottom, fill the entire, surface and you end up with yeah a field of evenly spaced regular straight lines but with a painterly impasto texture and i think it is that order and chaos thing that balance and when i'm making work i am looking to find a collaboration with the material such that i can do what i want to do but not impose upon the material in such a way that it can't do what it wants to do at the same time That's an interesting take on it because I was thinking of Agnes Martin's horizontal lines, but I was also thinking of Robert Ryman. Funny you should mention Robert Ryman. There is a quote of his that I had noted down that I thought was interesting, which I have my own take on. So Ryman said, there is never a question of what to paint, but only how to paint. I kind of took that, but twisted it a bit for my own purposes, which is the question is not, why will I make this? but why have I made this? Now that refers back to reading the paintings as a behavioural mirror. I just remember looking at those horizontal line paintings, which I thought were a brilliant assertion of paint as a material, Mm. not so much as an image. Then you get Agnes Martin's uh, horizontal lines that are very gentle and very quiet Mm. and very much more spiritual. 
I feel there's almost something about your work that embodies both of those things. And it's also interesting that you might look to Robert Ryman because in the story of your work, when I was talking about the book and all these different professionals that they consult with. So I'm interested in which artists you've looked at as as mentors, as ways to help you think about a new practice. I'm not sure that I've looked at other artists directly in terms of kind of restructuring a practice, but I'm certainly inspired by Robert Motherwell, not because I work in a similar way, in fact, because of the differences and the way in which he seemed to have this ability to compose in the moment and create fluid, expressive forms. I mean, him and Helen Frankenthaler as well, obviously very closely associated, because that's something I can't do, or at least I struggle to allow myself to do because of the risk of failure, I think is is the truth. If I'm looking for my work to make me feel good, risking failure is risking it becoming problematic for me psychologically. I guess that could be seen as a weakness, but that's what I need from it. But also then there's artists who are completely miles away from uh, from painting. So Douglas Gordon is one of my favourite artists. And he, of course, used The Exorcist in a piece called, oh, what was it called? Between Darkness and Light, I think. And he projected The Exorcist on one side of the screen and another film on the other side. Again, the name escapes me, something about Bernadette, nuns. Anyway, much of his work, particularly the early stuff, is about duality of character between darkness and light, good and bad. And so I identify with that a great deal. I'm just looking at his work. So he did 24-hour psycho. Um, Yeah, there was an exhibition he did at the Haywood in the early 2000s called What Have I Done? That's the first time I saw his work and I was just blown away. I love the title as well, What Have I Done? The double meaning of let's let's run through what I've done and being incredulous on could have actually perpetrated myself. That's right, it slowed it psycho so that it took 24 hours to play through the whole thing. I recall who he is now. I must have seen the psycho thing. But he also did a self-portrait. He got sticky tape yeah. and put it over his face. Yeah. And I found that a really powerful and quite an upsetting piece to reveal, and very brave, of course, to reveal the difference between how you're seen on the outside and how you feel on the inside. Mm. Oh, yeah, that speaks directly to the duality of characters within one person. I mean, that's really what turned me on to him when I saw that exhibition. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I can imagine. and And it's, yeah, very much stuck with me. Let's get back to your painting a bit, because I think there's a lot more to cover with regards to its production. When I look at the work that preempts this current work, my experience of those works is as if they are depicting light and shadow, whereas in your current works, they are enacting light and shadow. Mm. To me, that's the difference between the two. Not consciously. I think all my work is materials based. So from one sort of series to another, there may well be significant material differences. So there's the paintings which are thick impasto applications of oil, but then those works, rain evaporating off a hot pavement, those ones are heavy deposit of emulsion with incisions, lines carved into them, kind of crudely carved into them, and then a coat of tempera paint, black tempera, painted over the entire thing and then washed off in certain parts. So the emulsion's white, the temper is black, you get a very stark black and white contrast. But again, it's to do with the material qualities 
the emulsion when applied very thickly will visibly crack and kind of fissure as it dries as it shrinks and then the tempera's quality of being very washable so just one wipe with a damp sponge and it all comes off but leaves a kind of a shadow or a, a wash on there but then the composition of the work is still repeated parallel lines so the way that i approach different series of works is generally speaking to maintain one of a very few base compositional structures and then explore the qualities of different types of paint be it oil emulsion tempera ink acrylic I mean, I use my daughter's powder paints a lot of the time alongside a 40 pound tube of Michael Harding. There's no material hierarchy as far as I'm concerned. It's about finding the natural attraction in all types of paint and then working with it to produce something that says a bit about both parties, I guess, a bit about me and a bit about the material. In terms of titles, I've kind of gone back and forth on titles. When I was working figuratively, they meant something. When I started working in a non-representational way, for a long time I claimed they meant nothing. Very often quotes from books or more often than not lyrics from songs, sometimes my own little phrases. More recently, they've become significantly more pointed. They're almost kind of notes to self, so there's no conscious link. So they're titled after the painting is finished, are they? Yeah, very much so. As a lot of artists do, I have a, a great long list of titles I've collected over the years. And so when I've done a few paintings, a few new paintings, I'll kind of sift through and go, oh, which one feels like what I feel like and pick like that. But in the same way that I now look to the paintings to read back to me what I might have been thinking or feeling at the time that I made them, I also do look at the titles as significant in a similar way to tell me something about what I was feeling then. So that must include your series, Days I Lived, A World of Night. Yeah, that's very specific insofar as it refers to maybe the six months to a year or so before my breakdown, where in my professional life, the pressure that I was ultimately put under was just far too much and was the main reason for my coming apart of the scenes, ultimately. Not the only reason, but the main reason. And so at that time, I, uh, in the winter months, I could get up in the dark, you know, get up at five o'clock in the morning, get out of the house by just gone six, get to work by whatever it was, half past seven, and it was barely the sun was rising. I worked in a basement with no windows, wouldn't go out for lunch quite often. And then by the time I left work, it was dark. And so I, I could literally go a day, two days without seeing full daylight. Sorry, you sound like you were living in a Franz Kafka novel. It's not miles away from, you know, how I think of it now. When I think of it now, I am kind of incredulous that I really put up with that. But at the time, I was deep in something which left me no room to analyse it on a, on a rational level. So that title is the most direct that I've been. And then the more recent one, Don't Chase Your Demons, that's um, note to self for me not to carry on with the things that I perceive to be not good for me. That's where I am at the moment with titles. The other thing about your work, which is very striking, is that you have painted quite a lot of pastel colours and there are slight variations as well in the, the tilt of the diagonal. And the other thing is that the the more recent ones uh, don't have colour in them. And then there's also the really, really bright ones. So do you want to talk a bit about your approach to colour and how you decide on the angle of the diagonal? I have a real problem with colour. 
I, I really do. All colours are neither wrong nor right. They just are. So making a decision on a colour, it's how long is a piece of string for me. In the days I lived, the world of night works, I spent a long time trying different colours. And the way that I settled on what I was going to do was observing how different colours changed the way the sculptural elements of the painting, i.e. the thick texture, were best presented. So generally speaking, lighter shades and darker shades did more interesting things for the play of light across the surface of the painting than mid-tones yeah. did. So the lighter yeah. shades meant that the shadows were picked out in, in greater contrast. The darker mm. shades meant that the highlights of the glossy surface of the paint, again, were picked out in greater contrast. With the mid-tones, both kind of lost something. Both were subdued. So ultimately, the colour wasn't the issue there, it was the tone. Any light colour would work, any dark colour would work. In terms of the, the angle of the lines, initially I made a decision in the moment. Sometimes they'd be shallow angles, sometimes they'd be um, more dynamic. But quite quickly I realised that I was favouring one over the other. I was favouring horizontal over a vertical. And I also found that the closer I got to a 45 degree angle, yeah, less interesting yeah. the painting came. The dynamism of the composition detracted from the physicality of the paint that I was interested in. And so a less dynamic angle, something softer, something more subdued, did more for the, for the physicality, I felt. Following on from that, as I said, I, I was favouring horizontal rather than vertical. I didn't like that. So fairly late in the day, in terms of the series, I made the decision to make all the paintings square and of interchangeable orientation so you can hang them horizontal or vertical in order that there was no favoritism but also because they behave differently in the two different orientations depending on mm. where they're hung the light source and such like so in my studio i've got lights above and then a window hanging the horizontally composed paintings under the light from above you get a lovely sharp shadow and it really brings out the texture you hang them next to the window where it's a raking light from the left they practically disappear turn 90 degrees to the vertical the opposite is true so they function differently in different environments and i didn't want them to lose out on what they could be depending on where they ended up so you were talking before about your studio mm. and the writer funnily enough when he was going to write his book he rented a cabin and he couldn't write he got writer's block mm. so he had to go home which i thought was great but you've got a studio at home yes that's right that's that's funny i hadn't thought of that at all but certainly there's a similarity there i've had studios over the years for all over the place but once i'd come out of the kind of convalescence period one of the big things that my wife and i decided that time was that we'd both neglected our practices and the thing that brought us together and the thing that aside from family etc was the most important in our lives and we decided that we would transform the dining room at home into a studio so for a time it was shared i mean it's not a, a huge space but it's great and then more recently about a year ago um, we had a little conservatory built on the back of the house and that's now alex's studio and i've got the whole dining room space i share it with my daughter <laughs> she doesn't take up a lot of space but still more than i like <laughs> yeah yeah, oh, that's, yeah. Unfair. that's unfair L little little people do that <laughs> yeah somehow somehow i don't mind 
working at home has always been far more rewarding to me than going to a studio space. I think I think there's a degree mm. of pressure associated with going to a specific space, apart from the fact that you're mm-hmm. paying for it, so you better make it worthwhile. Whereas at home, I can come to it as and when I please. I mean, if I kind of wake up at three o'clock in the morning, ah, no, I've got to just do that. Fine, I can go ahead and do it. Mm. Um, mm. It feels a lot more fluid and a lot more integrated into my life. It's not the thing I do when I'm not doing the rest of life. It's just always mm, there mm. Well, for both of us. And of course, for Ivy now, um, she'll grow up surrounded by the stuff that Alex and I are making, which is totally normal for her. I would like to think that down the line, she might kind of look back on it and go, oh, do you know what? That's something that not everybody has. Yeah. yeah, I think it's fantastic. When we moved into our flat, we had a conservatory that was already on the back and it was all crumbling down and it was a rubbish old floor. And so I worked, I painted in the conservatory and it was quite nice when you had people around for a drink or whatever and all your paintings are there and it's you know very much part of your life. And I really miss that now because I go out to a studio I was was listening to a discussion the other day with Betty Williams and he was talking about his perfect studio is just another home. Mm. He wasn't interested in a a nice, tidy studio. There's a lot to be said for living with it, for it being just part of life and not not an add-on, not a separate, extraneous thing. Yeah, 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 definitely. We're going to have to wind up soon, but I want to cover a few areas quite specifically. So... The other thing you do on Instagram, well, I see it on Instagram, is painting pro bono mm-hmm. and painting per diem, where you feature a different painter each day. And I've been introduced to so many other artists that way. I think it's been fantastic. Do you want to talk a bit about how they came about? Yeah. So, well, let's let's start with painting per diem because that's the straightforward one. I've been on Instagram for, I don't know, five years or so, and it's been nothing short of revolutionary um, in terms of my practice and making connections to other artists and galleries and just interested parties. It's an absolute game changer. But once I'd kind of got a a modest following, I sort of realised that I had the opportunity there to really do other artists whose work I appreciated do them a favour by just sharing it. It's not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people do it. But I kind of openly do it as a way to support other artists. Well, I should say contemporary painters because I do make it specifically about painting. Mm. And I have verifiable proof that doing that has resulted in genuine success. Association Mm. with galleries and exhibitions and such like, just because people have seen an artwork pop up on my feed. And, you know, my feed's nothing special. But that's such a great feeling. And then I become friends with the artists and it's giving something for nothing and it's, it's receiving something for nothing as well. It's such a small thing to do for such a potentially big gain. Well, it reminds me of my discussion with Rosalind Davis, where she was talking about just building her own art community. Mm. She'd had, like you, some difficult experiences with galleries and with some of the people that she was dealing with. And she thought, you know, I don't have to play by these rules. I can just create my own thing. Mm. And that sounds like something you've done as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she's absolutely right. Instagram, along with a couple of other things, but generally the internet as a communication tool has in large part rewritten the rule book. But yes, so moving on to painting pro bono, 
up until the end of this year, I had gallery representation, three galleries in London, Barcelona and New York. I'd been represented for a little over a year. And whereas when that all began, I couldn't believe my luck and felt like all my Christmases had come at once. And I'd achieved the thing that had been my life goal since ever since I started on my foundation course. A year hence, I've realised it was not as great as I thought it was going to be. Um, oh dear. And this is not because of the galleries at all. I can't fault any one of them. They were all great. They did exactly what they said they were going to do. They were fair, honest, friendly, all that stuff. The reason was my response to the growing commercialization of my practice. It didn't bring out the best in my work or me. And I realized after a year or so that it had actually contributed to my not enjoying painting for a large part of that. It had become a production process under duress, again, answering to my assumption of other people's needs, which I should add, I knew an awful lot about because I've worked in the commercial art world as a technician and gallery manager for 15 years. I knew how to be a good artist, as it were, and I did it all, you know, but ultimately it was not for me. It was unfulfilling and in fact detrimental to my practice. And so at the beginning of this year, I jacked it all in. I left all three galleries, decommercialized my work entirely, decided not to sell it at all and decided to begin a project through which I give my paintings away for free. Yes, it appears on Instagram. I also do it through, through my mailing list. In actual fact, I'd originally done that back in 2015 for about a year or so. That's how I distributed my work back then on a much smaller right. level. And so I started painting pro bono about three months ago, I want to say. And so I release a painting like once a week or so, as I say, to my mailing list and on Instagram. People respond to say they want it. I draw a name out of the hat and that person gets it. Other than shipping costs, they pay nothing for it. But it, in addition to that, it's expanded recently. And as well as giving paintings away for free, I'm also now exchanging them for direct donations to charity. I usually ask for about £25. You know, it's got to be a nominal fee. It's got to be accessible to almost everybody mm. because I have a bit of an issue with the whole exclusivity of the art world. It's early days for this project, but it feels like the best solution I've come up with to getting my work out there and mm. the people who might enjoy it. It's not stacking up in my studio and critically it's going out there and doing the thing that it's made to do. One thing that you were saying in an earlier conversation we had about that was that there was all the effort and work that you'd put into refining your studio practice seemed so out of sync with the commercial reality of selling the work. Mm. And that is now resolved through painting pro bono? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of cliche to say it, but there's something quite soulless about that whole commercial thing, the art fair and such like. It doesn't reflect the way I feel about making work. Yeah, and it does make sense to me that you would also take to task all elements of production, mm. including who, who gets the work. Mm, yeah. From, which is, yeah, it's always tricky. <laughs> it is. It, it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. It does bear consideration and interrogation. And I suppose 
suppose forming a practice that is led by looking after myself and then funneling it into a system which, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, is not built to look after anybody, really. <laughs> yeah. Seems pretty incongruous. So, yes, the idea that, well, painting pro bono, literally painting for good, it's, that's not a direct Latin translation. That's my kind of butchered translation. It feels like the right next step for objects mm. that have been made with good health in mind. Mm. Speaking of good and bad, I would normally ask you to read an excerpt from the book at the beginning of this but we got into it so quickly uh, <laughs> and intensely because it was it's such an intense topic um, is, yeah. uh, your take on the book so can I ask you to read an excerpt now yes as I should add, there's obviously a lot of religious reference in this book. I'm not religious at all. So in this particular excerpt, I read mentions of the demon and possession as depression or mental illness. And I take kind of mentions of God as the self. Anyway, and you'll have to forgive my delivery. I'm not an actor at all. That's okay, because actors are not painters. Well, some are good, though. Ed Harris in They're... Pollock is bloody good. He, he taught himself to paint. I think they're allowed to paint. I encourage them. I encourage everybody to paint. But, you know, you don't have to put it out there. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Then what would be the purpose of possession? Karis said, frowning. What's the point? Who can know? Answered Marin. Who can really hope to know? He thought for a moment and then probingly continued. Yet I think the demon's target is not the possessed. It is us the observers, every person in this house. And I think, I think the point is to make us despair, to reject our own humanity, Damien, to see ourselves as ultimately bestial, as ultimately vile and putrescent, without dignity, ugly, unworthy. And there lies the heart of it, perhaps, in unworthiness. For I think belief in God is not a matter of reason at all. I think it finally is a matter of love, of accepting the possibility that God could love us. Again, Marin paused. He continued more slowly and with a hush of introspection. He knows the demon. He knows where to strike. He was naughty. Long ago, I despaired of ever loving my neighbor. Certain people repelled me. How could I love them? It tormented me. It led me to despair of myself and from that very soon to despair of my God. My faith was shattered. Karras looked up at Mary with interest. And what happened? He asked. Oh, well. At last, I realized that God could never ask of me that which I know to be psychologically impossible, that the love which he asked is in my will and not meant to be felt as emotion at all, not at all. He was asking that I act with love, that I do unto others, that I should do it unto those who repelled me. I believe it was a greater act of love than any other. He shook his head. I know that all of this must seem very obvious, Damien. I know, but at the time I could not see it. Strange blindness. How many husbands and wives, he muttered sadly, must believe they have fallen out of love because their hearts no longer race at the sight of their beloveds. Ah, dear God, he shook his head and then nodded. There it lies, I think, Damien. Possession. Not in wars, as some tend to believe. Not so much. Very seldom in extraordinary interventions, such as here. This girl, this poor child. No, I see it more often in the little things, Damien, in the senseless petty spites, the misunderstandings. The cruel and cutting word that leaps unbidden to the tongue between friends, between lovers. Enough of these, Marion whispered, and we have no need of Satan to manage our wars. These we manage for ourselves. I'm not sure that you're not an actor, an actor. I was just acting as an actor. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, that was very good. Thank you. Why did you choose that Why excerpt? did I choose that bit? Well, there's two bits. Well, the final part 
where he talks about the evil being seen in in the little things rung bells with me in terms of when I was at my worst stage. I was unpleasant in all ways and I wasn't doing terrible things day in, day out. I was unpleasant to be around just in general, all the time, short-tempered, angry, petulant, rude. That rang a lot of bells. But then also earlier on when he talks about, let's say the demon's target is not the possessed, it is us, the observers, every person in this house. That made me think about how the way I was affected the people around me. And that's something I feel deep guilt and regret over because it doesn't just go away now that I'm much better. That all happened. That's all still there with them. Mm. And they still carry that as well as what I carry. One of the hardest things was that I went to my parents' house in June 2016 when I had the breakdown. I left there in September and within two weeks, my dad passed away. And I can't shake the idea that the dreadful torment that I put him through, worrying about me, about what I might do, because I was taken to their house from a tube station where the police were called because I was uh, considered a risk to myself. And he and my mum had to deal with that directly, immediately, and then look after me day by day, hour by hour for the following weeks when he then passed away two weeks after I moved back home, I find it impossible to dissociate what I put him through with the fact that he died. So yeah, so I think that's why that particular section really spoke to me, because it does, as I say, well, the whole book, that's why I chose the whole book, but there are many levels on which it mirrors things that I feel I've experienced and been in my life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's an incredible hardship. And you know what it's like when you have children, you agree to take on a certain, I suppose, burden in a way of mm. responsibility and love and care. And there is obviously a very difficult and challenging side to that as well as a very hopeful and optimistic side to that yeah you know I'm not I, I don't know what it was like for you but for you to have a place to go for your parents to be able to offer you a place of convalescence and then to see you on your way I imagine would be a very hopeful thing but I can understand being conscious of the guilt that's associated with the effect on people well, it's a permanent scar, really. That's it. It's part of oneself. That's right. There's a whole conversation to be had about that that I think is really positive, but it's not for now. Mm. It's, it's for post-lockdown beers. Yeah, no, I, I would have to agree, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but what I was going to say about one of the things that the piece you read out had me thinking about was the point of possession and the point of depression, where I think there is a point to depression there is a point to the fact that let's say something is overwhelming meets with things that you haven't dealt with, meets with circumstances that are untenable and anything else that might go into it. Your mind is saying that you can't cope. This mm. is just beyond your scope. And so I think we come to these things when we are forced to make a change because we haven't been able to make that change that we've needed to make. I think there are normal healthy depressions that one needs to go through, which relates to that point of possession 
you know, what's the point of this? And that's also caused that massive shift in your art practice, Mm. which I imagine from our conversation, you can now see is absolutely worthwhile. And perhaps you couldn't have made such a drastic shift had that not happened. No, you're absolutely right. This is something that I've kind of wrestled with and I can't resolve at the moment because the last four years of my practice and my life have been really good <laughs> really good yeah and i'm yeah. really yeah, happy yeah. with what i'm making and why i'm making it and the fact that i've been able to concentrate and establish exactly what it is that i'm doing but when i ask myself that slightly game show question of you could have either the horrible depression and the breakdown oh no and oh that's so cruel the great thing you're at now <laughs> no. Or you could go back and have it never happen. I can't answer that. Could I throw away Mm. everything I've got over the last four years in order to save myself and everybody else I care about from going through that? Don't ask me. It's it's unanswerable. It's impossible. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you just don't get closure on a lot of things. Exactly. Um, And also, the other thing from that piece was the idea of Will and Tom Wilmot. (laughs) I'm just thinking now, (laughs) the idea of will and that to come out of depression and to not regress takes a lot of work. It doesn't just happen. And the development of an art practice and the courage to do what you've done in your art practice doesn't just happen either. It takes a lot of determination. And I think there's something broadly about the book where in the end, the devil is cast out. But we know in real life, in a strange way, the film shows regression because of the sequences, Exorcist 2, 3, 4, 5, however many there were. And the fact that this shaped the author's life away and the author finally did a redraft of the book and did the audio book which you listened to i think he's about 84 he's only recently died he could never really come out of it so i think there's a tie in with a life led and an art practice in all that yes you're right it is a constant battle and it doesn't go away in the book the devil's not actually cast out In the end, Merrin dies in the midst of the exorcism. Demon remains in Reagan, and ultimately Karras draws it into himself in order to Mm. save the girl and is only able to get rid of it by killing himself. So there isn't a victory there, and the demon is free to go and do it again. That's true. Um, true. But I think that that's a good analogy in terms of what you were talking about, because depression doesn't go away. It can be, you know, temporarily defeated and it can be kept in check. So I think, again, in that way, that the ending is is a pretty good analogy. Tom Wilmot, I can't possibly end on a totally miserable note. But, uh, well, it's not really miserable. It's just life, isn't it? It's just facing difficulties and challenges and traumas that we somehow live through and then are continually not shell-shocked by, but there is that aftershock that resonates, that continues. Anyway, changing the topic completely, what are you reading now? Oh, Are you reading a, anything else now? I've got a big stack of Mills and Boone and Fifty Shades of Grey hasn't been read yet, so I've got to get through that. <laughs> um, I, I can't wait to see that come out in your work. Oh, gosh, you won't see that? No, I've just finished Tell Them I Said No. Oh, yeah. I think Rosalind also mentioned, because obviously I quit the commercial art world, and so I thought, let's have some stories about you know other artists who have done that. And in fact, Agnes Martin mm. pops up in that as well. So yeah, that was very yeah. good. That was quite empowering. 
I also read a compilation or a collection of works on truth by George Orwell. It's a, it's a series of excerpts from Animal Farm and 1984 and then various oh, okay. stuff on his political work and specifically about the veracity of the press and politicians and stuff. I mean, in a nutshell, don't believe a word of it. I just saw the other day um, On Being an Artist by Michael Craig Martin, which I started ages ago, but I only got a few pages into. I think I might pick that mm. up again. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, probably Yeah, that. He is very interesting because he's very straightforward and succinct. Very. Tom Wilmosh, thank you very much for being my guest today on Art Fictions. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's been an honour. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review, and of course you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, artfictions2020, or my website, gilliannight.co.uk. Across these you'll find images of the artist's work, as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. Is that somebody upstairs? Someone knocked on the door. I just ignore them. I just. I, oh, okay. I'm in the middle of it here. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna answer the door to yeah. just a DPD. I mean, he can wait. <laughs> He's only gonna leave it on the step anyway.